Blessed be your name, Lord. Whether we are in the desert, whether we're in the wilderness, whether the sun is shining down on us and, and all is as it should be, whether we're suffering, you give and you take away. And we say, blessed be your glorious name. Amen. And be seated. So, Last week, we started a new sermon series called One Hit Wonders, and, and I don't know if you're anything like me. I didn't play any of the One Hit Wonders that we talked about that Rolling Stone magazine gave, but I find myself through the week humming and singing some of those songs, and I just couldn't get them out of my head. Maybe you're not like me, but... I, I couldn't get, I, in fact, I'm now singing it in my head as I'm, as I'm talking right now, which I probably should try and get it out of my head, but, but come on, Eileen. Um, today we're going to continue our series on the one-hit wonders of the Bible. And what I mean by that are the books of the Bible that consist of one and only one chapter. But that one chapter, that one-hit wonder as it is, was so good, it was so important, so full of significance, that even that one single solitary chapter was given a title and was included among the Bible's 66 books. And last week we cooked it, kicked it off with the only of those one-hit wonders that was found in the Old Testament section of the Bible, those 39 books that preceded Jesus. And that was the 21 verses written by the prophet Obadiah. And today we now turn to the New Testament section of the Bible, those 27 books written after that follow Jesus, to begin the rest of our journey through the one-hit wonders of the Bible. And in each of these one-hit wonders, we're going to look at letters. Now, when we refer to the 66 books of the Bible, the, the truth of the matter is there's all kinds of genres there. There's poetry, there's history, there's prophecy, there's storytelling, and you also have letters. So what is a letter? Some people don't quite realize that, that a large part of the New Testament is made up of letters written by one of the apostles to various churches around the world. And each of them tend to carry the name of the people or the church that it was sent to. So Philippians is the name of the book, or the letter, but was sent to the people who lived in the city of Philippi. First and second Corinthians were two letters sent to the people who lived in Corinth. And when these letters were received, the custom was for them to read that letter aloud to the entire church. And the reason they're included in the Bible is because they were written by one of the apostles. Now, that word apostle means those who have been sent. And the mission that Jesus sent them on was to teach and to preach. See, these were men who were to speak in Jesus' name and to carry his words, Jesus' words, to others. They were the foundation upon which that early church was built in, in our church as well. They carried the very authority of Jesus himself as they taught. And Jesus even once said of them, He who receives you receives me. 
Each was given a personal commission by Jesus himself. They were never self-appointed. Each was given a historical experience of an interaction with Jesus himself. They were with Jesus. They spent time with Jesus, or they encountered Jesus. You see, for Paul, the last of the apostles appointed, it was a post-resurrection interaction with Jesus. Each apostle was given a special inspiration for their teaching by Jesus through the Holy Spirit. And Jesus said that they would supernaturally be supernaturally guided into all truth when they were teaching and speaking and writing as the apostles. So, in fact, when, when Paul became an, uh, an apostle, Jesus himself said to Paul at his commissioning, I am sending you. This is why we read in the Bible that the early church devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. And that, that's what the letters in the New Testament are all about. They are the writings, the teachings of the apostles to and for the early church. And in an ongoing way, they're for us as well. Which brings us to the one-chapter letter that we're going to look at today. It's a letter that's titled Philemon. Now, this letter is a little bit unique from the other letters of the New Testament because while most were written to a specific church, this letter was written to a specific person, Philemon. And it was sent to him by the apostle Paul. See, Paul's letter to Philemon is a very personal one about a very personal and a very sensitive issue. It's about a runaway slave. You see, slavery was central to the Roman-dominated world of that time. Historians estimated that there were 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire. See, in that mix, when, when that was all abundant and going on, Christianity bursts onto the scene. A faith that had radically new understandings about equality and about community. The Christian movement carried the seeds of bringing an end to things like slavery and liberating women and ending child labor and working towards economic justice. But because of Jesus, because of what Jesus did, because of how he died for our sins— and gave an offering of salvation to all of us. There was a new spiritual economy, a new sense of community. That old economy had been rich and had been tabled on the rich over the poor, the owner over the slave, the men over the women, the Jew over the Gentile. There was a spiritual pecking order, a social pecking order. But Jesus changed all of that when it came when it comes to the foot of the cross it is a level playing field which is why you have the apostle paul writing in another letter these words he says for you are all children of god through faith in christ jesus and all who have been united with christ in baptism have put on christ like putting on new clothes there's no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. See, this 
was a revolution. It was a societal, it was a cultural revolution. It was all brand new to everyone, including those new Christians. This is all being learned and applied and, and sorted out and processed in that first century time of the Christians. And they're, they're trying to figure out what to do with it, which meant that you would have someone who owned slaves who would become a Christian. So what do they do now with their slaves? Philemon was a friend of Paul's, and he had also become a Christian through Paul. In fact, the church at, at Colossae, which, the, which was the recipient of the letter from the book of Colossians, met at Philemon's home. The church met at his home. He was a leader in that church. And here's what happened. Philemon had a slave named Onesimus, who had apparently stolen a large sum of money and then ran away to Rome. And while there, Onesimus also comes into contact with Paul. And through that relationship with Paul, Onesimus also becomes a Christ follower and then becomes valuable to Paul serving Paul in strategic ways, not to mention becoming a trusted friend. And as we'll read in a moment, Paul was tempted to keep Onesimus with him there in Rome. But in the end, they decide that the best thing for Onesimus was to return and to get things right with Philemon as a brother in Christ, to own up for what he had stolen, to seek forgiveness, to be reconciled, to address the fact that he was a slave and wrongly, by Roman law, had run away. Which you can imagine, that's a high-risk stakes for Onesimus. The slave who ran away and was later caught could expect many different types of punishment from flogging to branding to being sold to, to hard labor to crucifixion to being thrown into the arena with wild beasts. That's what if you just ran away as a slave. Imagine what would await a slave who not only ran away, but also stole from their owner before running away. See, Paul was betting on, on this new economy of the kingdom of God inaugurated through Jesus to continue to break down barriers. And it would need to break down barriers in terms of forgiveness for not only stealing, but also break down those barriers against the institution of slavery. And all Onesimus had in his hand when he went back was this letter from Paul to Philemon. I can almost imagine it. Out of the blue, there comes a knock at the door. Philemon opens the door, and there stands Onesimus, a thief, a runaway slave, who hands him a letter from none other than Paul. I can also imagine Onesimus saying something like, Now, before you say anything, hold on a second. Please read this first. And that's, that's what we're going to look at today, that, that letter that Paul wrote, that Onesimus took back with him and then gave to Philemon. And as a letter, it begins like a letter with a formal greeting. We read it here. It says, this letter is from Paul, 
a prisoner for preaching the good news about Christ Jesus, and from our brother Timothy. I am writing to Philemon, our beloved co-worker, and to our sister Aphthia, and to our fellow soldier Archippus, and to the church that meets in your house. May God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ give you grace and peace. Paul identifies that himself and makes a reference to his imprisonment. See, it was common in that day to include the name of anyone that you happened to be with as, as you were writing, so that's why he would include Timothy at the beginning. And he also makes it clear who he is writing to. He's writing to Philemon. That's who this letter is for. But he also includes the name of a woman and of a man. Aphthia, who was probably Philemon's wife, and Archippus, who was probably his son. We don't know for certain, but that tends to be what most people think. And then, as a courtesy, he sends greetings to, through them to the church that meets in their house. But let's keep reading. I always thank my God when I pray for you, Philemon, because I keep hearing about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all of God's people. And I am praying that you will put into action that generosity that comes from your faith as you understand and experience all the good things we have in Christ. Your love has given me much joy and comfort, my brother, for your kindness has often refreshed the hearts of God's people. Let's stop there for a second. Paul begins by reminding Philemon that, that through being a committed Christ follower, he's, he's, it's almost like he's saying, I want to remind you how God has just changed your world, how you're not the person you used to be. You're a man of faith, a man known and marked by demonstrable love for God's people. You're known for your kindness. You're known for your generosity. Paul begins by noting that that and, and saying that he's been praying that, that he will be able to continue to apply that to his life, that Philemon will continue to to grow in Christ and apply that to not only his life, but to those around him. And I love that last line that Paul wrote, who you are in Christ has so refreshed the hearts of God's people. Paul starts off by reminding Philemon, who is new and growing in his faith, who's become a Christ follower, what that means, and all that it has changed, all that it has brought into and onto Philemon's life. But then we come to the heart of the letter. This is why I'm boldly asking a favor of you. I could demand it in the name of Christ because it is the right thing for you to do. But because of our love, I prefer simply to ask. Consider this as a request for me, Paul, an old man, and now also a prisoner for the sake of Christ Jesus. I appeal to you to show kindness to my child, Onesimus. I became his father in the faith while here in prison. 
Onesimus hasn't been of much use to you in the past. But, but now he is very useful to both of us. I am sending him back to you. And you and with him comes my own heart. See, Paul is appealing to the, the Christian character of Philemon to do the right thing. And as an apostle, he could have commanded it. Paul was trying to teach, to educate, to nurture, to develop that growing faith in Philemon. Paul, is, he's, he wants Philemon as a Christ follower to want to do what Jesus would have him to do, to let it radically apply to everything and to everyone that he comes into contact with, including Onesimus, who Paul tells him is now also a Christian. See, it's common in the Bible to read of someone being someone else's father or mother in the faith. And Paul says that. He calls Onesimus his son. That meant that they were the ones that God used to bring them into the faith, to introduce them to Jesus. So, for example, if any of you met Christ in this church, then I would be your spiritual father. It's a special and an important relationship. For me, my spiritual father and mother is Pastor Ron and Linda Davis. They're the ones who introduced me to Christ. So Paul is saying here, you don't have any idea how dear this man is to me. He's my spiritual son. I'm his spiritual father. Paul then makes a play on Onesimus's name. You see, Onesimus means useful. So Paul says that, yes, the one who was useless for you, for running away, for stealing from you, is now useful. Reminding Philemon what that revolution set in motion by Jesus was all about. How sweeping, how transforming that revolution was. And here again was the power of Christ to make all things new. To take away that which seems useless, discarded of no worth, and to turn it into something of great value and of great worth. He did it for Paul. He did it for Philemon. And he has done it for Onesimus. And that's what Paul drives home now, that there is something radically, entirely new in the relationship between Philemon and his runaway slave, Onesimus, because of Jesus. Here's what he says. I wanted to keep him here with me while I was in these chains for preaching the good news, and he would have helped me on your behalf. But I didn't want to do anything without your consent. I wanted you to help because you were willing, not because you were forced. It seems you lost Onesimus for a little while so that he could, he could have him back forever. He is no longer a slave to you. He is more than a slave. He is a beloved brother, especially to me. Now he will mean much more to you, both as a man and as a brother in the Lord. 
Think about how radical, how radical reading that would have been for Philemon. Without justifying anything that Onesimus did, Paul says, yes, he ran away. Yes, he stole from you. Yes, you lost him for a season. But look at what happened as a result. Look at what happened while he was gone. He came to Christ. And now he is not simply back with you physically, but he is back with you spiritually. You'll be together for all of eternity, but not as a slave and as an owner, but as two brothers. Think about what Paul was saying to him. Yes, technically, legally, he's still your slave. But you're not to treat him like one. He is your brother. You are equal in Christ. Which indirectly raises a question for Philemon. Can my brother in Christ be my slave? And before we get to the hints of how Philemon answered that question... Let's ask it to ourselves. What is impossible for you if you are a Christ follower for your brother and sister in Christ to be? Can your brother and sister in Christ be your slave? Obviously not, but what else can't they be? Can your brother and sister in Christ be your enemy? Can they be trolled, demeaned, or insulted online? Can they be harmed by you in any way? Can they be taken advantage of by you? Whether that be financially, sexually, or in power or control. Can they be exploited by you? Can your brother and sister in Christ be slandered? Can they be looked down upon, rejected because of their race or their sex or their income or their education or even their appearance? How often we judge each other when we are brothers and sisters in Christ. But, but let's keep reading. So if you consider me your partner, Welcome him as you would welcome me. If he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge it to me. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it, and I won't mention that you owe me your very soul. Yes, my brother, please do me this favor for the Lord's sake. Give me this encouragement in Christ. I am confident as I write this letter that you will do what I ask and even more. So there it was. Paul asked Philemon to forgive Onesimus, to welcome him back fully as a brother in Christ, to even welcome him as if it were Paul himself standing in front of him. And, and though we don't know the amount of money that Onesimus stole, it must have been a lot because Paul goes out of his way 
to say that he will repay it. And that's why he writes that part of the letter in his own handwriting. See, Paul was an older man by that time and again imprisoned for his faith. There are indications that, that Paul was having problems with his vision, which means that he often would write very large if he were to write and to be able to write at all or to be able to see what was written. And Paul would often dictate these letters to someone who would take down what he said. That was probably Timothy here because he mentions him at the beginning of the letter. And then Paul asked for the letter from Timothy and to stop dictating. And Paul writes down that repayment part in his own handwriting because doing that would have made it legally binding an IOU in that culture. He says that he will do this, if need be, even though what Philemon already owes Paul is far more. Philemon owes Paul his very soul because it was through Philemon, that, that through Paul that Philemon was introduced to the message of Jesus. Paul could, could have subtly reminded Philemon of a story that Jesus once told of an unmerciful servant, a story that Philemon would have been well aware of. And let me read it to you, Matthew chapter 18 in the message paraphrase. At this point, Peter got up the nerve to ask, Master, how many times do I forgive my brother or sister who hurts me? Seven? Jesus replied, seven hardly try 70 times seven the kingdom of god is like a king who decided to square accounts with his servants as he got underway one servant was brought before him who had run up a debt of a hundred thousand dollars he couldn't pay up so the king ordered the man along with his wife and children and goods to be auctioned off at the slave market the poor wretch threw himself at the king's feet and begged, give me a chance and I'll pay it back. Touched by his plea, the king let him off, erasing his debt. The servant was no sooner out of the room when he came upon one of his fellow servants who owed him $10. He seized him by the throat and demanded, pay up now. The poor wretch threw himself down and begged, give me a chance and I'll pay it all back. But he wouldn't do it. He had him arrested and put in jail until the debt was paid. When the other servants saw this going on, they were outraged and brought a detailed report to the king. The king summoned the man and said, You evil servant, I forgave your entire debt when you begged me for mercy. Shouldn't you be compelled to be merciful to your fellow servant who also asked for mercy? The king was furious and put the screws to the man until he paid back his entire debt. And that's exactly 
what my Father in heaven is going to do to each one of you who doesn't forgive unconditionally anyone who asks for mercy. Paul is doing everything that he can to challenge, to encourage, to admonish Philemon spiritually, to engage the situation he's, that he's in with Onesimus in a totally different light. Not as an owner to a slave, but as two sin-stained, sin-soaked, sin-covered, but redeemed men who have both received forgiveness from God through the work of Jesus Christ. They have both experienced amazing grace. Philemon has a chance to not be that person in Jesus' story, to, but to show his own gratitude for all that God has done for him, for all that he has himself been forgiven of. But did you notice what Paul wrote at the end of that big ask for Philemon, that big challenge? Let me read it to you again. I am confident as I write this letter that you will do what I ask and even more. All Paul had asked for directly was that he welcome Onesimus back as a brother in Christ, to not press charges, to not have him arrested, to not have him killed, to forgive him, to allow him to return. So what was Paul confident about? What was Paul confident that Philemon would do beyond this? Now, it's not spelled out here, but most believe that Paul was making it clear that, that he was confident that Philemon would free Onesimus, that he would free him from being a slave that he would see that in Christ there's neither slave nor free, that the death of slavery is found in a new community with Christ. But it raises a question. Why wasn't there more of a direct renunciation of slavery from Paul? Why wasn't there more moral outrage about slavery? And Part of the answer to that question is because that is, was a different kind of slavery than what we think of. Slavery in the first century is different than the slavery that we had here in America, which we are more familiar with. And what we tend to do is we read into the New Testament passages about slavery what we know about slavery from here in America, the, the horrific nightmare that it was. But originally... In Roman times, slave population consisted of captured prisoners of war. Now, many of those countries at that time, if they captured a prisoner of war, they would just execute them. So having the source of your slaves that led the Romans to believe that, that, it was their, that slave's existence was actually a gift of life because they were saved from being executed. Now, those ranks were later increased by persons convicted of capital crimes. People who were going to serve the rest of their lives in prison were made slaves. There were children who were sold by their parents who could no longer feed them. There were children dropped off at the temples or just dumped out in the streets. 
for various other reasons. And then there were some people who themselves sold themselves into slavery to avoid starvation or to work for an important family. The entire Roman civilization was based on this kind of slavery. The entire economy was based on the labor that it provided, and some estimates say that up to a third of the entire population fell into this category. So there were at least five ways that first century slavery was different than the slavery that we had here in America. Number one, not all first century slaves were treated poorly. And not all of them even wanted to escape slavery. Many of them entered it willingly. Number two, ancient slavery did not have any racial overtones. Number three, it was, it was often seen as a way to get an education, since it was common for slaves to be educated as a part of their role. Number four, since race didn't destine anyone for slavery, most ancient slaves did not think that their slavery was a permanent condition. It was just a season of their life that they would later leave. And then finally, owning a slave was not simply for the wealthy, but it extended far down the social scale. Even servants could own slaves. See, all of this makes our understanding of slavery very different than what the ancient slavery was like, even though any and all slavery is wrong. What Paul confronted culturally was less the burning issue than he would have read into it that we would read into it from our vantage point. And also, when Paul wrote this, the Christian movement was, was the subject to the power of Rome. Remember, Paul was in prison for his faith when he wrote this letter. The Christian faith was largely seen as an, as an underground movement that was already seen as culturally subversive. To openly renounce the institutions of the Roman culture would have led to such conflict between Rome and the Christian faith that Christians would have been labeled as being harmful to society. So instead of condemning slavery directly, Paul lays out the principles. He lays out the principles that would ultimately underline, undermine slavery. So what we have here is a treatise on the abolition of slavery, the theological reasoning that slavery should be abolished. Paul makes it clear that he doesn't want to demand that Philemon do this. He's wanting Philemon to see his own relationship with Jesus and to see what that relationship would demand. And apparently, that's exactly what Philemon did. Tradition tells us that later on, Onesimus served as a bishop in the church in Ephesus, not something a slave would be allowed to do. Paul ends his letter to Philemon with, with these words. One more thing. Please prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that God will answer your prayers and let me return to you soon. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends you his greetings. So do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, 
my fellow co-workers. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. See, he's asking them to prepare a room for him just as a final word of encouragement. Because many had been praying for Paul's freedom and that this was meant to cheer them up. So there you have it. The letter from Paul to Philemon. One chapter in length, but one of the most powerful, one of the most influential stories in the Bible. Now this letter is full of heroes. Paul is a hero for stepping into the gap, for risking his relationship with both men and the Christian community to address a sensitive issue. He staked his name, his money, his friendship on this. Philemon is also a hero because he let love win. He followed Christ. He accepted Onesimus back as a brother in Christ. And don't forget about Onesimus. He's a hero too. Just think what it took for him to return to Philemon's house with just a letter in his hand as his only hope. He returned to Philemon even though it might have meant his execution. So we have here lessons from this letter, and those lessons are profound. Forgiveness, love, community, and obedience. It shows us the power of the message of Jesus to change our circumstances, to alter our society, and to level the playing field at the foot of the cross. These four things, forgiveness, love, community, and obedience are still needed in our culture, in our society to this very day. And when I think about those four, it reminds me of what we're about to take part of, the communion service. And, and one of those verses that we often use is found in 1 Corinthians. And as I was reading it this morning, I went back a couple verses. See, we always start at 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23. But when you go back a couple verses to see what that message was really all about for the Corinthian church, the Corinthian church didn't have it all together. Here's, here's what it says, but in the following instructions, I cannot praise you, for it sounds as if more harm than good is done when you meet together. First, I hear that there are divisions among you when you meet as a church. And to some extent, I believe it. See, when you meet together, you're not really interested in the Lord's Supper. For some of you, you, you hurry to eat your meal without sharing it with others. And as a result, some go hungry while others get drunk. What? What? Don't you have your own homes for eating and drinking? Or do you really want to disgrace God's church and shame the poor? What I am supposed to say, do you, do you want me to praise you? Well, I certainly will not praise you for this. For I pass on to you what I received from the Lord himself. On the night before he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took some bread. And that's the part that we then always know. 
But do you see the context there? This was a divided church. This was a church that was fighting amongst each other. And he tells them to come together for communion. To come together as a church. And that's what we want to do this morning. So in a moment, I'm going to ask you to come up. You can get some juice, you can get some bread, and you can, there's at both sides, you can take it back to your seat. And if you need gluten-free, it's in the bowl on this side. But just come. And then once you get back to your seats, we'll conclude.